Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey, Jim. Um, I'm not sure if our followers or our listeners, rather, have been um, following the news about what's been happening in Kenya recently with the followers of a man named Paul McKenzie, but it is simply heartbreaking. So just to provide a quick summary, Kenyan police were tipped off about a cult that was meeting on McKenzie's property. And when they went to go check it out, they found more than a dozen emaciated people in countless shallow graves. So basically, McKenzie was leading a doomsday cult, and he was encouraging his followers to fast to death for Jesus. And within a month, just one month, more than 200 bodies have been found, most of them bearing signs of starvation. And if that's not tragic enough, another 600 people are still missing. Jim, I just scratched the surface of the story. So what else do you want to add? Uh, yeah, I think you gave a good, although tragic, summary of, of what took place. This was, a as you mentioned, this was a Christian doomsday cult where its leader, a man by the name of Paul McKenzie, um, promised his followers salvation through death by starvation. Uh, hundreds of people had abandoned their homes and moved to the uh, Shakahola Forest since 2021, which is a very remote wilderness area of southeastern Kenya. Uh, McKenzie was a, is a former uh, taxi driver and turned televangelist. Uh, and he declared that the world was about to end. Uh, he marketed Shakahola to his followers as a kind of uh, sanctuary from the coming apocalypse. Come gather with me in this remote area while the world you know, falls apart. But instead of a sanctuary, it became a cemetery, uh, a terrible crime scene uh, filled with those who had starved themselves to death, or as McKinsey would put it, crucified themselves so that they could meet Jesus. Mm. And it wasn't all about starvation. There's a lot that's been coming. I've been following the story. Um, much more is unfolding. Kenyan pathologists have reported that some of the bodies uh, reveal that they died by strangulation, mm -hmm. Uh, some by bludgeoning, some by asphyxiation. Uh, some had their organs removed, and they're still not quite sure what all was up with that. And as you mentioned, hundreds are still missing, uh, perhaps buried in undiscovered graves. Um, McKenzie has told investigators that he never ordered his followers to do anything of this nature, and he merely preached about the end times as prophesied in the book of Revelation. Uh, he has, however, though, been arrested and is being investigated and um, over accusations of murder and terrorism and also other crimes. You know, the, the, so if, if, you, if you follow his story, the church he started, I mentioned he was a former taxi driver, but he started a church back in 2002. And it was by all accounts, a normal Christian church with straightforward biblical teaching, but he became increasingly apocalyptic in his preaching, which means focused on the end times. Uh, and there were rumors also of financial impropriety in terms of what he was doing with church finances. By 2017, McKinsey started um, telling worshipers not to see doctors and also telling them, don't send your children to school. Mm -hmm. Two pretty big red flags. Mm -hmm. 
He said he had received a revelation from God about education and medicine both being evil and sinful. In 2019, uh, he said that Kenya's introduction of a national identification number was clearly, okay, this is now the mark of the beast, he said, and another sign of the coming apocalypse. Shortly after that, he shut down his church, sold its property, uh, and moved to the Shakahola Forest, inviting followers to join him in forming a new holy land. Hmm. He even had sections of the land named after holy land sites, like, you know, here's Galilee, and here's this, and here's that. Uh, the arrival of COVID in 2020 seemed to increase his message and increase his appeal, almost, almost like a vindication of everything that he had been saying about the end of the world. And while the scale of this is horrendous, and brings to mind such tragedies as Jim Jones and the mass murder-suicide in Jonestown and Guyana. It's sadly something, though, that is happening more frequently than ever before. It really is. Uh, for example, at around the same time that the uh, Kenya story broke, um, a mother in Idaho with doomsday religious beliefs was found guilty of murdering her uh, two of her children and conspiring to kill another. Mm. Well, I guess that's what I wanted to talk, I mean, certainly about what's going on in Kenya. But as you mentioned, this isn't just Kenya. This is happening all over. So we have talked about cults a little bit already in our discussions about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as when we unpack Scientology. So we'll link um, the the in, in the show notes, we'll link those because I think those are really helpful kind of precursors to this conversation. But I just want to talk a little bit more broadly about cults in general today. So just to start us off, can you redefine for us what a cult is exactly? Yeah, and I want to define it carefully because I think that it, you know, it, it's, it's, it has its own history. And I think that there's a classic sociological understanding of a cult. But I think that in the 1970s and 80s, some Christians used it to beat up on any religion they didn't agree with theologically and would call something a cult that really wasn't a cult. It might have been a non-Christian sect. It might have been, you know, but, it, but you don't want to call it a cult. Sociologically, a cult has several defining characteristics that set it apart from um, sets it apart from an, uh, just simply another religion. A cult is marked by such things as mind control, uh, shunning if you ever choose to leave that cult, um, the purposeful, intentional separation and isolation from friends and family. In other words, we want to get you away from your family and cut off contact between you and your family, forbidding any type of exposure to outside information, certainly anything that would challenge the cult's teachings or the cult's worldview. So it, it, they want to cut you off from the rest of the world, forbid exposure, as I mentioned, to outside information and sources. Um, it, they often It often negates, just like we just were talking about, negates education. Mm -hmm. And uh, or even forbids it uh, or certain forbids it past a certain level, uh, encourages spying on one another within the cult and then turning people in mm. as a result of that uh, spying for various infractions and punishments. These are all the classic marks of a cult. It's not simply false teaching uh, or a non-Christian sect or a false religion. A cult goes beyond that into these types of dynamics. Well, something I find interesting is that when people think of a cult generally, people tend to, th to think of beliefs, like religious groups with extreme views. And yet, I don't think it's by accident that the word cult is related to the word occult. How might that be kind of an important thing to remember for this conversation? You know, when you study the word cult, 
and, and you trace it. it. It's 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 like nailing jello to the wall. It's just all over the place. It's it's and, and a lot of times there there are certain links that I'm not sure we we should make. The the word cult has a base meaning that is rooted in the idea of cultivation. Mm. You know, to to cultivate, to care for something. And the word cult could then be seen as cultivating a certain set of beliefs or practices or ideas. Occult is a word that carries a meaning of mystery, that which is beyond, you know, human understanding, something secret, something that is hidden or concealed. And uh, typically, when we talk about the word cult, we're not using it to, to talk about religion in general or any cultivation of ideas or doctrines. But, you know, we're using it sociologically in the sense that I just outlined, you know, mind control and all these other different kinds of things. And when we t- use the term occult, it's not simply mystery or hidden or beyond human understanding, which could fall any, I mean, you could say the new physics would then be a cult or something like that. But when, when we're talking about the occult, the classic understanding of that is the world of the occult is the world of the demonic, the world of Satan. It's a, it's a, used spiritually in that sense. So I'm not sure that I would push the connection between the two etymologically. Okay. But I think you can push it spiritually, meaning that the evil one uh, who works in and through all things occultic is just as happy to work through its kissing cousin, the cultic, in the sense that we have defined that term. Mm, that's helpful. Now, from an outsider perspective, it's really easy to look at a cult and think, these people are crazy. Like, I would never fall for that. And yet, just as cults have common denominators, so do a lot of cult followers. And when I was looking into this, they're not what I would have expected. In fact, cult members tend to have, for example, a high level of education, um, high financial success. Most of them are younger. Um, It's common that they don't have much spiritual background, but they do have a little bit more time on their hands. So from your perspective, what draws people to cults? Well, we could, we could have an entire podcast on that alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me force myself to answer it in shorthand. Um, I, I think there are several reasons that have been certainly cataloged by um, not just the social sciences, but the mental health field. Um, and also those that are you know pastors in, in vocational ministry. I mean, all three of those people have kind of a stake in this, in terms of looking at all things, um, the draw of the occult. One is that um, they genuinely believe that what the leader of the group or the group itself is espousing solves problems, addresses issues that aren't solved or addressed by anyone else. Um, and so there, there, there is that sense where, okay, th- th- this is addressing something that needs to be addressed and nobody else is addressing it or no one else is addressing it as well. Uh, the Nazi cult, for example, and I think you could call it the Nazi cult, um, promised a solution to Germany's problems. You know, uh, following World War I, there was a sense of great um, national, you know, a sense that national pride had been wounded by World War I. The results of that, the economy was in shambles. And essentially Hitler came along and, and, and I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but, um, you know, hey, I'll restore national pride in being German and I'll make sure there's a Volkswagen in every garage. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it, it was, it addressed some pretty felt needs. And, um, and initially he was obviously successful at that, which just reinforced the cult. Another dynamic is low self-esteem. You listed that they can be wealthy and successful and, and educated, but you left out secure, hmm. um, self-confident. Uh, many cults specialize on making you feel special. 
Um, and, 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 and they can also supply a purpose in life that wasn't there. Or maybe you thought you had exhausted all these things and found that they didn't provide a purpose in life. And so you go searching. You mentioned that they draw on the successful or at least financially successful. Well, what happens is when those kinds of needs are often met in somebody's life, they've achieved something of that level of success. They turn to deeper things, more spiritual things. And you know, it's kind of like I'm financially fit, so now I want to get emotionally fit or I want to get psychologically fit or I want to get spiritually fit. And they're, they're used to addressing those things in terms of a life coach, a life guru, a program, a, pr- a package, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so they almost look for something that will do that for them spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's cults master in that. But I, th- I think the biggest reason, though, is a sense of belonging, hmm. a sense of community. Cult members are often people with few friends or family of their own. And I'll go so far as to say is that many of these people are looking for a father or they're looking for a mother. Hmm. And the cult leader provides that authority figure that is, in, you know, that there's finally a father they never had or fills a father-shaped hole or fills a mother-shaped hole. Um, cult leaders certainly are not male-exclusive. And so uh, there is a there is that thing you mentioned that many of these people are young who mm-hmm. embrace this, and so there's there I think that's a, a dynamic. It was really interesting. One thing that people might enjoy watching. Well, I don't I mean, enjoy watching it. it it's 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 kind of like driving by a car wreck, and you feel like you have to slow down because it's just. Um, uh, HBO did um, a documentary on um, a cult called Nexium that received a lot of press because it had some Hollywood people in it, uh, stars were attracted to it and some filmmakers and others, people that fit, fit your, your profile of, you know, smart, you know, educated, successful, wealthy. And, um, it was kind of a sex cult where they were branded, women were branded and, you, you know, people may have heard about this. And, and I, as I watched it, I found that here were these bright people who were drawn into ridiculous things. And, and, and you, you did feel like there was that sense of, they had so much in place, except they didn't have a spiritual background by which to navigate waters. There was a sense of a desperate need for some type of community. And there was a desperate, desperate need for self-confidence. And, 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 and I felt like those three things stood out in in that particular expose. Mm. I might be taking us afield here, but Am I naive in drawing a connection between cults and conspiracy theories? Because I do think they have a lot of similarities. The conspiracy theories are more accessible, and yet I think they do similar damage to us when we buy into them. Like, are we is it are we comparing apples with apples with cults and conspiracy theories? I think we are. I think this is a very important point to make, um, namely that there is very much a link between conspiracy theories and cults, and it is often a conspiracy theory or a set of conspiracy theories that give identity and energy to a cult, mm-hmm. you know, kind of it's a reason to exist. It, it's, it's us against the world because nobody understands what we understand has the insights we understand. Um, let, let's just chase a modern example that has been in the press of late or the last few years, QAnon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was a set of conspiracy theories that began to develop into cult like activity. Uh, I mean, their big ideas were that 5G radio waves were being used for mind control. Uh, Things like George Floyd's murder was a hoax. Uh, Bill Gates is related to the devil. 
Um, face masks will kill you. The germ theory isn't real. And there's a ring of pedophiles made up of deep state leaders. Um, Caitlin Beatty did a, a, an expose on this that I thought was excellent and that we'll link in the short show notes. Um, she wrote the conspiracy theories and she tied it in with, with all this are, are just these grand narratives that set in that, that, that seek to prove that, that powerful actors are secretly controlling events and, and institutions for evil purposes. That's kind of the, the trait of them. And QAnon, um, really coalesced in online forums and created millions of believers. Uh, one person even wrote that you look at QAnon and you don't just see a conspiracy theory to what your question raised. You really see the birth of a new religion, <laughs> arguably a cult. Um, QAnon, by the way, is named after a person or an entity named Q who posted anonymously on the uh, online bulletin board 4chan and QAnon alleged a whole bunch of stuff that uh, President Trump and military officials were working to expose a deep state, as I mentioned, pedophile ring uh, with links to Hollywood, the media and, and the Democratic Party. And since it's first mentioned uh, some three years ago, the theory has drawn adherents looking for a clear way to explain just disorienting global events. Uh, Beatty rightly notes, I think, that, that the soil is just fertile for conspiracy theories uh, to erupt in, in cults and in, and in cult-like activity. It's just fertile for that. You have so many things in place right now, and certainly was during COVID and still is, suspicion of big government, questioning of scientific consensus, uh, a rejection of the morals of Hollywood and liberal elites, coupled with the feelings of political alienation and rejection by mainstream media. These are all, these are all the natural targets of, of QAnon. And, and let's be clear, distrust of mainstream news sources can feed a penchant for conspiracy theories. In fact, the distrust of mainstream media became so acute um, during COVID that a, a group of leading Christians uh, it led to a plea from prominent Christian thinkers that was simply titled a Christian statement on science for pandemic times, just to try to get some rationality back into um, to Christians because the distrust ran so deep that you know, things that they were rejecting that they shouldn't reject. Anyway, uh, of even deeper concern, though, I think, is how all of this is, is harming and has harmed the witness of the church. I read of one pastor who said that he feared that Jesus would be so co-opted by conspiracy theorists that it would lead to, to the, um, the next generation just throwing Jesus out with the bathwater. Or as another person put it, um, why would I listen to my friend Joe who's telling me about Jesus when Joe also thinks communists are taking over America and are operating a pedophile ring out of a pizza restaurant. Hmm. Why, why would, why would I believe that? Um, now we all know that nobody says, Hey, I'm sharing a conspiracy theory. Right. <laughs> um, they only share what they believe to be truth. Um, but things like QAnon really are, are, are different. I mean, you know, as, as Haiti, as Beatty um, kind of concluded, she, she was writing about how QAnon is, is more than a political ideology. It, it, it's left that barn. Uh, it, it's a, it's a spiritual worldview that co-ops a lot of Christian sounding ideas to uh, promote um, verifiably false claims. Hmm. And it's leaders 
um, even will tell their followers. And some leaders, of, when this is in churches, will even tell people, don't watch certain media outlets. Don't watch mainstream media, uh, even conservative media. You have to watch just QAnon YouTube channels and stick to the QMAP website. Well, as we've already discussed, that's the mark of a cult. It's like a virtual cult. Yep. Yep. I want to double click on something that you said of like people aren't identifying themselves as believing in conspiracy theories. They're just stating what they believe to be true. And I think that's so interesting because I feel like really the very designations of cult and conspiracy theory are innocuous in a world where truth is just relative, right? Like who's to say if everybody's posting their own truth that a belief is extreme or that a theory is conspiratorial if truth is just defined by every person? Let's talk about truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, I think you, you've put your, your finger on the heart of the, of the matter, which is the role, place, definition of truth in our modern world. Because it's, 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 um, it's, it's changing and it's changed. I remember the Oxford Year of the Word. Uh, I mean, Oxford uh, Word of the Year back in, in 2016 was the word post-truth. And it meant that truth no longer mattered, that we lived in a post-truth world where truth used to be the barometer, the touchstone, you know, what, what you would appeal to or not appeal to. And but we've moved beyond truth where truth is is not relevant. What really matters is emotion. What matters is opinion. It makes me think of how Stephen Colbert uh, used to talk about truthiness on Comedy Central. Uh, the idea behind truthiness is that actual facts don't matter. What matters is how you feel. For you as an individual are the final arbiter of truth. Um, but that was prescient. I mean, that was, that was, but that's exactly where we're at. But that, his whole idea was that truthiness is the assertion that we are not only to discern truth for ourselves, but we are to, um, you know, from the facts at hand, but we're to create truth for ourselves despite the facts at hand. Yet if Christians have been about anything, uh, it's been about truth. And we follow a Savior who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I've come to bring truth to bear. Um, and so, and that's marked us throughout our history through the heresy gathering councils, the heresy, I'm sorry, addressing councils of the patristic era, and the back to the sources cry of the, the Reformation, the... the bold proclamation of the gospel during the great awakenings and the, the gauntlet of revelation throw down before modernism more recently. I mean, truth has been our bulwark and, and a very specific understanding of truth. I might add the correspondence theory of truth. And, and, and again, let, let's, let's, let's talk about that. There's, there's in the history of, of Western thought, there has been three main conceptualizations, three main understandings, three main ideas about what do we mean when we say truth. Um, the first and most dominant and the one that marks the Christian faith or should mark the Christian faith is a correspondence theory of truth. The idea is simple. If I say it's raining, then it's either raining or it's not. And it can be verified. I can go outside and it's either raining or it's not. It corresponds. Truth is what corresponds with reality. If I say it's raining, you just walk outside and you can discover whether my statement corresponds with reality or not. You can determine right away whether my statement is true. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, this is by far the most common understanding of the nature of truth. It's left obviously the strongest mark on Christian thinking and certainly Christian theology. Now, it has a weakness. I mean, all, all theories do, but it, the weakness is that not everything can be verified by walking out your door and seeing if indeed it's raining. I mean, I might say there is a God, and if you walk out your door, will my statement be proved? But the greater dynamic of the correspondence theory is this. If there is a God, then he, he you know, the, the truth, he would exist. That, that's what the correspondence idea is. I may not be able to do it through empirical verification and by looking out my door, but the whole idea of correspondence is, is that if there is a God, that, that if I say there is a God, it's true if, if there is a God. It's a very simple idea. Mm-hmm. That, that's the truth of it. Um, is that regardless of whether you can validate it, what is true is that which what which does indeed correspond with reality, mm-hmm. regardless of your ability to currently make that correspondence. So while a triune God may not be discernible through the empirical method of science, the correspondence idea is that the triune God is true because there is indeed a triune God who exists in reality. A second theory regarding truth is what's often called the coherence theory of truth, which is the idea that truth is that which is marked by coherence, and meaning a set of ideas that do not contradict each other. Hmm. The coherence theory of truth is that it's kind of like a Sudoku, Sudoku p- uh, puzzle, if you ever played one of those. The numbers must align. There can't be a violation of the internal rules, and the completed puzzle must fill in all of the squares. So imagine a system of thought consisting of a tightly bound set of ideas that when introduced complement one another and there are no internal contradictions Mm -hmm. in that system of thought. Uh, Perhaps you might think of um, a set of ideas like a set of colors that don't clash with each other when they're put side by side. The coherence theory is that that truth not only holds that truth is that which is coherent, but that truth is ultimately marked by a system of thought that hangs together. It hangs together in a way that is superior to the way any other system hangs together. So ultimate truth is finding a system of thought that hangs together and is more coherent than any other system of thought or set of ideas or set of values. So, for example, democracy might be considered by one political theorist to be truer than Marxism in terms of its internal consistency. Okay. The dilemma is that such a view divorces itself from what is, in fact, true or what may be true. I mean, think of the testimony of a witness during a trial. The story may make sense. It may hold up under cross-examination, but that doesn't make it true. The argument simply presents itself as a plausible narrative without internal contradiction. Granted, this is far better than if it did contradict itself, but it's still not sufficient. And for the Christian, too, the Bible goes out of its way to suggest that a coherence view of truth can and will prove inadequate when it comes to the things of God. For example, it records God saying, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. The way you think is not necessarily the way I think. What you think hangs together may not be the way I think things hang together. Hmm. Uh, and, And even contends as well, or as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, that the gospel itself can seem foolish to the human mind, mm-hmm. um, just foolishness to the Greeks. Thus, a human perspective will always find aspects of God's truth incoherent, even though it remains profoundly true. 
third major contender for truth uh, throughout history has been the pr pragmatic theory of truth. Uh, when someone is being pragmatic, they're pursuing a course of action because it achieves an end result. Hmm. So a pragmatic theory of truth is that what is true is what works. Okay. Uh, this is an appealing view, uh, particularly when we consider Jesus' words, even as a Christian, they were to judge things by their fruit. Uh, however, determining what is what is truly fruit of the Holy Spirit and what's done in the flesh, or even what is in the end evil, is tricky business. Mm -hmm. One needs only to think of, again, let me go back to Nazi Germany and the final solution of Nazi Germany. Early on, Christians supported Hitler. Christians, the, 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 the state Lutheran church supported, Luther, supported Hitler. Um, and a lot of it was because they felt like they saw God's hand of blessing on what he was doing. Hey, I mean, look at, look at the expansions we're making. Look at the success we're having. Look at the victories that we're having. So there was a sense, well, that must be God's hand of blessing. And so the, almost a pragmatic idea of truth came into play. Mm -hmm. Hitler went on, though, to believe that the principal woes of Germany were found not in the expansions and such, but in the existence of the Jewish people. And they constituted an erosion of capital. Uh, and a waste of space, in his words. And from this, a removal of what was referred to as, uh, in the Nazi cult, life unworthy of life. That was elevated to the highest duty of medicine. And as a result, the final solution was their extermination. And there can be little doubt that the workmanlike, I mean, there was just workmanlike efficiency evidenced by the smoke that billowed from Auschwitz. Um, but... Who was going to say that's true? Hmm. And that was true just because it worked in that sense. Worked. Right. It was it worked as rank evil is how it worked. So when you look at the three candidates for our best understanding of truth, the correspondence theory of truth uh, deserves its place of prominence in Christian and more broadly Western thought. But this is precisely what's being abandoned. Hmm. The, the whole idea of the correspondence theory of truth is just it's just being abandoned. It, 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 we, it, and it's also undermining the whole idea of revelation is true and just biblical inspiration is true. I mean, everything about this is being undermined. Um, this is what we're losing. Um, and this is the heart of the matter because it's for the Christian. It's not just the loss of truth in the world, but when you dig into what you're dealing with, when you're discipling Christians or working with Christians, you find also the disavowal of biblical authority. Right. It's all part of one package because it's the disavowal of wider understandings of truth. Um, and, uh, and what we don't want, to seemingly embrace is that truth exists transcendently and stands over human experience. That's what we rebel against. Truth, yet truth is by its very nature transcendent. It's exactly what it does. It's exactly what we don't. We want to reverse it to where we stand over truth. We determine what is truth. We define what is truth. We determine what we accept is true. And so we become God. Hmm. It's the ultimate um, sin that goes all the way back to the garden of Eden. Um, so this is why we live in a truthy post-truth world where everything is about my opinion, my judgment, my emotion, my research, my fill in the blank, um, you know, my, my understanding of things. Uh, but you know, it's funny. I, I remember something I read long ago and, and, and I, you know, some of the skeptics and the atheists and the agnostics of earlier generations uh, 
with infamous names, Sartre, Camus, Nietzsche, Freud. One of the things that I appreciate about reading them is that they were honest about their convictions and, and the implications. Hmm. And, and I, I found that about Nietzsche with nihilism and others and, 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 and Freud, Freud was a hardened skeptic, but he understood the ridiculous nature of abandoning the correspondence understanding of truth. And I remember, and this is a bit of a paraphrase, but I remember him saying something to the effect, and if, I'll see if we can get the exact quote maybe in the show notes or the source, because I, I've, he said, if it was really a matter of indifference, what we believed, it really doesn't matter what we believed, then we might as well just build our bridges out of cardboard and, and instead of stone or inject a tenth of a gram of morphine into a patient instead of a hundredth or take tear gas as a narcotic instead of ether. And his point was, of course, truth matters. Of course, correspondence to reality matters. And it's like, let's just put skepticism in its place and the idea that there's no truth in its place. That's insane. And that was from Freud. As I'm thinking about this, you know, I feel like people might be listening and think like, oh, it's easy to disregard the type of truthiness that may manifest itself in following a conspiracy theory or cult. And yet I think that truthiness is a lot more subtle and personal than we realize. I guess my question would be, you know, let's get the extreme version of truthiness out of our mind for a second and think of us, like all of us who are listening, who think that we are pretty capable and intelligent and have a grasp on reality, how might we guard ourselves against the draw of, you know, modern day cults or conspiracy theories or just overall truthiness? Well, let me tell you what I think the church should be doing. Okay. And those of us who are part of, who, who are engaged in that and what needs to be happening within the Christian community, which in, which is a way of answering your question, you know, how do we guard ourselves? Um, by golly, let's get back to teaching truth, and let's and let's let's serve it up. Let's serve it up as a stiff drink, you know that that this is truth, and and not apologize for it. Um, let the world deal with the weight of it, and um, and and I, I would and I would package it as truth. That doesn't mean you don't make an apologetic for it. It doesn't mean you don't offer expl- explanation. It doesn't mean you beat people over the head with it. But it does mean that you you teach truth. And that true truth exists. Um, and you interact with scripture accordingly. Hmm. You know, and you bring, you interact with that humility, that submission. Um, and then you bring that truth to bear on the issues of the day. And help people think Christianly about things. And begin to form a Christian worldview. And a Christian worldview is not my worldview. It's a, it's a worldview based on revelation. And so I'm submitting my intellect and my, and my understandings to the scriptures and forming a Christian worldview by which I look at things. And that we need to expose and confront false teaching and, and be bold with that. And, 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 even if you, and even if it's just simply saying, okay, here is this perspective. This is not the Christian faith. You don't even have to get nasty. I don't want you to get nasty about it. But say, this is, this, is, this is where it fails biblically. This is, you know, you may hold to this, but it's, it's not the Christian faith. This is not what Christianity is saying. It's not what the Bible teaches. 
and to make that clear in people's minds because so much gets conflated in people's minds about and so uh, no one would ever say that they believe false teaching but they do and it's because they don't have a biblical worldview and they don't have someone helping them understand and think through these issues uh, next i would say foster and build authentic community hmm. if so much of, of the vulnerability to these things is a, is a is a you know a, a cry for community like if you get involved in QAnon because you're trying to find a sense of community or you're finding it online or you start off with the gaming community or whatever it is and you're just searching for this so if churches need to foster and build authentic community which i think they do well um but we just need to do with intentionality mm. and then really only the only the gospel only the news of jesus mm. can stand against the forces of this world and the older I get and the more complicated things get, the more I come back to the good news, which is very simple. Very simple. It really is John 3, 16 and 17. You know, it is. It is simple. And, and, and there is no other power that is greater than the simple message of Jesus, who he was, what he did, how we can be in relationship with God through him. What is life, death, and resurrection holds. And, and there is no other power that is greater than that. And if we can cling to that and promote that, I think we'll be guarded well. I love that. You mentioned serving up truth like a stiff drink, and yet you ending with the reminder that it may you may have to serve it up that way, but when you remember that the truth is the gospel, it goes down really easily. This isn't just like a, it's a truth whether you like it or not. Like this is a greater truth than you could have ever imagined for yourself. Like this is, it's beautiful truth. I love that. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Jim, for all your thoughts and um, how helpful this conversation was. I hope you guys have a great week and we will be here again next week. So yeah, I hope you'll tune in then.